Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, A Day in the Life. It's based upon the lectionary readings for February 7th, 2021. In her 1989 book, The Writing Life, Annie Dillard reminds us of something that is at once obvious and shocking. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. I can't speak for you, but I find this straightforward truth disconcerting. Why? Because much of the time I'm not impressed by how I spend my days and I don't want them to count as my life. So I tell myself that this day or that shapeless string of days last week or that dull six-month stretch two years ago don't count. I erase them. What will count, I promise myself, are the days I plan to live in the future. Days filled with intention, purpose, and meaning. Days meticulously scheduled and faithfully executed. Days marked by attentiveness, order, devotion, and beauty. When I get around to living those days, maybe tomorrow, maybe next month, then I will begin to sculpt my life. It's a fantasy, of course, because Dillard is right. How we shape the quotidian is how we shape our existence. Our mundane hours are just as illustrative, more so really, than our occasional mountaintop moments. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. In our Gospel reading this week, St. Mark shows us a day in the life of Jesus. As the Messiah begins his public ministry, we have an opportunity to follow him around for 24 hours, observing what he does, what he says, and what he prioritizes. In typical Markan fashion, this section of the Gospel races from one event to the next, favoring speed over depth. Still, if we look carefully, we can find moments to linger over and lessons to savor. What might we learn if we journey with Jesus through a day of his life? Before we delve in, though, a reminder of grace. My intention is not to hold up Jesus' daily schedule as a formula or measuring stick for our own. The point isn't to compare our days to his and to spare at our inadequacy. The point is to trust that we are saved not only by Jesus' death and resurrection, but also by his life. Reflecting on that life is nourishing and salvific. It moves us closer to Christ-likeness and closer to the compassionate heart of God. So, a day in the life. Here's how Jesus spends it. He makes the home sacred. Our lectionary begins with Jesus leaving the synagogue after Sabbath worship, entering the home of Simon and Andrew, and spending the rest of the day in that domestic space. This might sound like a trivial detail, but I love the fact that Jesus lingers at home, blessing a humdrum everyday location with his presence and honoring it as a sacred site where the work of God's kingdom goes forward. We know from the rest of the Gospels that some of Jesus' most significant encounters happen in homes. He performs his first public miracle at a home in Cana. He raises Jairus' daughter in the synagogue leader's house. His friend Mary anoints him with oil at her home in Bethany. Salvation comes to Zacchaeus when the despised tax collector welcomes Jesus as a house guest. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus recognize Jesus when he breaks bread at their dinner table. 
Holy things happen in the places we call home. God's power and presence are not limited to official sacred spaces. Our living quarters are not second best when it comes to seeking and finding Jesus. If anything, Jesus delights in the domestic. For me, Jesus' delight is a particular comfort during these days of COVID when I am largely confined to my home. There have been so many days in the past year when I have felt restless, trapped, and in limbo, as if real life has been suspended, and nothing spiritually significant will happen until the world's lockdowns and quarantines are over. I'm grateful to know that Jesus is not put off by the mundane as I am. He does amazing work in spaces I consider familiar and ordinary. What would it be like for us to honor our homes as Jesus honors Simon's in our gospel reading? To elevate our living spaces as sites for the sacred. He heals. Jesus' first act in this week's reading is to heal Simon's mother-in-law. Hearing that she's feverish and bedridden, he goes to her side, takes her by the hand, and lifts her up. Immediately, the fever leaves her body, and she is restored to health. Some hours later, the whole city gathers around Simon's door, likewise seeking healing from various diseases and demons. Again, Jesus cares for them as a compassionate healer, curing many. I'll be the first to admit they don't always know what to do with Jesus' healing stories. Is it just me? Or have things changed rather drastically since he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, ushering in God's kingdom with all manner of miraculous signs and wonders? The problem with miracles, Barbara Brown Taylor writes, is that it is hard to witness them without wanting one of your own. Every one of us knows someone who is suffering. Every one of us knows someone who could use a miracle. But miracles are hard to come by. This has always been true, but I find Taylor's words particularly piercing in the context of the pandemic. Don't get me wrong, I love the healing stories in the Gospels. I love the power and compassion with which Jesus touches the sick and the suffering. But sometimes I wish that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had included a few less dramatic stories in their books, too. Did Jesus ever, for example, visit a feverish woman, take her hand, and offer only the comfort of his presence, without curing her? Did he ever sit in the dark with a profoundly depressed man? Just sit. Did he ever keep vigil at a deathbed and cry with the family as they said goodbye? No resurrection, just tears. Did he ever experience God's no or God's wait when he sought to heal someone? Obviously, I don't know the answer to these questions, but I hang on to them as possibilities. What I know is that Jesus spent many hours of his life offering whatever compassion, healing, and liberation he could. In this week's story, he heals many, not all. He casts out many demons, not all. But the not all doesn't stymie him. He still touches everyone who reaches out for help because touch itself is an agent of hope and healing. He loves without measure because love cures many ills. He doesn't assume that illness and demon possession are punishments from God because such assumptions are cruel and wounding. In short, he offers the sick and the broken his steady presence, his warm grip and embrace, and the good news of a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom without sickness, without sorrow, without fear. And his offers are enough. Maybe our task as healers isn't to perform magic. Maybe spending our days as Jesus spent his means living graciously and compassionately in this vast and often terrible in-between. To offer the comfort of our steady presence to those who suffer. 
to encourage those in pain to hang on because the work of redemption is ongoing, to create and to restore community, family, and dignity to those who have to walk through this life sick, weak, and wounded without cures, and to make sure that no one who has to die, and that's all of us in the end, dies abandoned and unloved if we can help it. He liberates and commissions. Mark's Gospel tells us that as soon as Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, she begins to serve. I'll be honest, my initial reaction to this detail was disappointment and frustration. Of course, I thought, the poor woman has to leap out of bed and serve the men in her house a second her fever leaves her. Of course, no one allows her to rest and regain her strength for a few hours. Of course, the men don't serve her. Isn't that so typical of this sexist world? Maybe. Maybe what we're reading in this story is sexism pure and simple. But I wonder. The verb St. Mark uses to describe the mother-in-law's service is the same verb the Gospels use to describe the angels who attend Jesus after his 40 days in the wilderness. It is the same verb Jesus uses to describe himself when he washes his disciples' feet. Quote, I am among you as one who serves. End quote. And it is the same verb the early church uses to commission deacons, the servant leaders of the church. What if Simon's mother-in-law is not an undervalued woman in a patriarchal system, but the church's first deacon, the first person Jesus liberates and commissions into service for God? If nothing else, it is interesting to note that this unnamed woman recognizes and pursues her calling long before her son-in-law and his friends do. While Simon and his gang bumble around getting in Jesus' way, this woman gets to work without hesitation or self-consciousness, engaging in grateful ministry alongside Jesus. In healing her, Jesus also liberates and commissions her. Though we know little else about the woman's life, I think we can safely assume that her ministry is effective. In 1 Corinthians, we read that Peter's wife accompanies him on his apostolic journeys after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Clearly, this mother-in-law has a profound and long-term impact on the faith of her daughter and the extended family. Insofar as we are invited to heal, we are also invited to free others for the service of God. We're invited to pay attention, to notice, and to bless the gifts and abilities of those around us. Like Jesus, can we spend our days as liberators, commissioning God's beloved to serve in love? He prays. The next morning, St. Mark's writes, while it's still dark, Jesus goes to a deserted place to spend time with God. This is not a one-off. We know from the other Gospels that prayer was one of Jesus' daily practices. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. In seemingly minor verses like these, we see glimpses of Jesus' deeply rooted spiritual life, the source of his strength and vision. We see his need to withdraw, his hunger for solitary prayer, his inclination to rest, recuperate, and reorient his heart. These glimpses take nothing away from Jesus' divinity. They enhance it, making it richer and all the more mysterious. They remind us that the Incarnation truly is Christianity's best gift to the world. The Christ, the Messiah of the whole universe, prays, rests, reflects, and meditates. He needs time alone. He needs time alone with God. He is just like us. 
Also like us, Jesus understands the ongoing and necessary tension between compassion and self-protection in a world bursting with desperate need. Jesus lives with this tension every day, and he is unapologetic about his need for rest and solitude. Even as the crowds throng to him, he feels no shame in retreating when he needs a break. This is an apt lesson for those of us who live in cultures where tireless striving is a virtue and the need for rest is considered a weakness. It's also a challenge to those of us who might think about prayer a lot without actually setting aside time to pray. When our hours and days are measured, how many of them will we have spent alone with God? He moves on. Our gospel reading ends with Jesus leaving Simon's house so that he can take the good news of God to other towns, other synagogues, other homes. He makes this decision despite the fact that his disciples interrupt his prayer time to tell him that, quote, everyone is still searching for him back at Simon's house. Clearly, there are compelling reasons for Jesus to stay where he is. But his response is to set a boundary, to say no, to move on in keeping with his own sense of mission and timing. Given Jesus' compassionate heart, I can't imagine that he makes this decision lightly. I imagine it costs him something. But after a morning of prayer and reflection, he recognizes and trusts the voice that says, it's time to go. Can we learn anything from Jesus' choice? Can we learn to hold calling, timing, and need in productive tension? Can we trust that sowing a seed and walking away is sometimes enough? Can we relinquish fame and power and choose obscurity instead? Can we risk the new and the unknown? Can we hold firm to our sense of vocation even when our loved ones don't understand or agree with our choices? Can we establish and honor healthy boundaries? As we sculpt the hours that make up the days that make up our lives, who or what directs our decisions? Are we, like Jesus, able to let go and move on? How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. May we, like Jesus, spend ours well. For books this week, Dan reviews John Meacham's The Hope of Glory, Reflections on the Last Words of Jesus from the Cross. If you are looking for a resource for Lent that begins this Ash Wednesday on February 17th, John Meacham's little book would make an excellent choice. Meacham is on that short list of important public intellectuals who are openly Christian. He has published a dozen books and won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for his best-selling biography of Andrew Jackson called American Lion. Today he holds the Carolyn T. and Robert M. Rogers Endowed Chair in American Presidency at Vanderbilt University. Meacham's book explores the Christian tradition that began in the Middle Ages of contemplating the so-called last seven words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Verily I say unto you today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The longest part of the book is actually his 30-page prologue, which is followed by seven chapters that are about 10 pages each and then a brief epilogue. The challenge of the seven words is that, of, is that of assigning theological meaning to an ancient historical story. In scholarly language, this is the task of relating the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. History and theology are inextricably bound up with each other, and together, I submit, they create truth. 
Meacham is well aware of the intellectual challenges here, but nonetheless describes his book as devotional. The book began as a series of sermons at the Episcopal Parish of St. Thomas Church, 5th Avenue in New York City, where he served in the vestry. Meacham is a thoughtful reader who commends openness and humility. He rejects the fundamentalisms of the left and the right. Quote, For Christians, the coming of Jesus' hour is the hinge of history. We kneel before the cross in homage to self-giving love, and the cross should serve as both rebuke and reminder, a rebuke to the world for its vanities and sins, and a reminder that at the center of the Christian story lies love, not hate, grace, not rage, mercy, not vengeance. For films this week, Dan reviews The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song which will air February 16th and 23rd, 2021, at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. As I write this review, Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where Martin Luther King Jr. and his father both served as pastors, was elected as the first African-American U.S. Senator from Georgia and the first African-American Democrat from the southern U.S. to serve in the Senate. And as he liked to say about his inspiring story, his mother picked cotton for other people. Warnock's story is just one of many reminders of what the country owes to black America in general, and in particular to the unique relationship between the black church and its politics. On February 16th and 23rd, 2021, at 9 p.m. Eastern, PBS will air its four-hour, in two parts, miniseries by Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. of Harvard on the 400-year history and culture of the Black Church. This is from the PBS press release. Renowned participants in the series include media executive and philanthropist Oprah Winfrey, singer, songwriter, producer, and philanthropist John Legend, singer and actress Jennifer Hudson, presiding Bishop Michael Curry of the Episcopal Church, gospel legends Yolanda Adams, Pastor Shirley Caesar and B.B. Winans, civil rights leaders Reverend Al Sharpton and Reverend William Barber II, scholar Cornell West, and many more. Through their interviews, viewers will be transported by the songs that speak to one's soul, by preaching styles that have moved congregations and a nation, and by beliefs and actions that drew African Americans from the violent margins of society to the front lines of change. For many, the black church is their house of worship. For some, it is ground zero for social justice. For others, it is a place of transcendent cultural gifts exported to the world, from the soulful voices of preachers and congregants to the sublime sounds of gospel music. For the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., going to church in America also was the most segregated hour of the work of the week. The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, will explore the changing nature of worship spaces and the men and women who shepherded them from the pulpit, the choir loft, and church pews. The churches are also a world within a world, where black Americans could be themselves, and the epicenter of the freedom struggle that revolutionized the United States across history and abolition, Reconstruction, Jim Crow and the Great Migration, and the Civil Rights Movement. Our series is a riveting and systematic exploration of the myriad ways in which African Americans have worshipped God in their own images, and continue to do so today, from the plantation and prayer houses, to camp meetings and storefront structures, to mosques and megachurches, says Dr. Gates. This is the story and song our ancestors bequeathed to us, and it comes at a time in our country when the very things they struggled and died for, faith and freedom, justice and equality, democracy and grace, all are on the line. No social institution in the black community is more central and important than the black church.
Throughout the series, viewers will witness much of this world expand out to politics, culture, and education. As churches are born, denominations are fractured, and leaders are made and critiqued in their quest to bring the word to the world and the world to a higher ground. At once a liberating and traditional center of power, the church in Gates' telling is at a crossroads today. Torn between social issues and justice, human rights and inequality, secular and spiritual trends, the past and future, prompting many to wonder whether the churches of their parents and grandparents have become closed off to the most important issues of the time. The black church has taken people from the valley to the mountaintop, and as some of the most influential black voices today reflect on the meaning of the church in their lives and to the country, this series, this series will contemplate where the promised land is for this generation and the next. Lastly, for poetry this week, Kids Who Die by Langston Hughes. This is for the kids who die, black and white. For kids will die, certainly. The old and rich will live on a while, as always, eating blood and gold, letting kids die. Kids will die in the swamps of Mississippi, organizing sharecroppers. Kids will die in the streets of Chicago, organizing workers. Kids will die in the orange groves of California, telling others to get together. Whites and Filipinos, Negroes and Mexicans, all kinds of kids will die who don't believe in lies and bribes and contentment and a lousy peace. Of course, the wise and the learned who pen editorials in the papers and the gentlemen with a doctor in front of their names, white and black, who make surveys and write books, will live on weaving words to smother the kids who die. And the sleazy courts and the bribe-reaching police and the blood-loving generals and the money-loving preachers will all raise their hands against the kids who die beating them with laws and clubs and bayonets and bullets to frighten the people. For the kids who die are like iron in the blood of the people, and the old and rich don't want the people to taste the iron of the kids who die. Don't want the people to get wise to their own power, to believe in Angelo Herndon, or even get together. Listen, kids who die, maybe, now. There will be no monument for you except in our hearts. Maybe your bodies will be lost in a swamp or a prison grave or the potter's field or the rivers where you're drowned like Liebknecht. But the day will come. You are sure yourselves that it is coming when the marching feet of the masses will raise for you a living monument of love and joy and laughter. And black hands and white hands clasped as one and a song that reaches the sky the song of the life triumphant through the kids who die. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 7th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.